sure that, you know, you have, probably haven't heard it at least articulated. But preachers, elders, church leaders have no inherent authority. Which means that what I say doesn't matter. Unless unless what I say comes from God. The authority of the church, the authority of a pastor, a preacher, elders, your church officers, the authority that we exercise is what in our, our system we call declarative authority. And what that means is we are bound to be able to say only that which comes from God's word. And if it doesn't, you are free to not listen. Let me tell you that again. If, if we're declaring something and, and saying, like, this is something you have to, not like, hey, this is something that we think would be wise, or here's something that we would love for you to pray about, or here's what we think would be good for you, but, like, here's what the scriptures teach. If, if, you, if, if what we're saying is not, here is principles pulled from the scriptures, something that God has said to us in his word, it, it's just, And so one of the reasons, the very reason why I say every week as I come out here, hey, if you've got a Bible graph, turn it into the you know, book of Malachi, it's in, your, it's in your bulletin, is I want you to be clear. In fact, I need you, in some sense, to hold me accountable. That what I'm saying to you is actually coming out of the Word of God. Because if you have a, if you have a speaker who's dynamic, he's awesome, he stands and he says a bunch of stuff, but it's not from the world, huh? It's wasted time. We're all just wasting time. So, in light of that, if you have your Bible with you, you can open it to Malachi. If not, the passage is there in your order of worship. This is our second week in this series through the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. I promise you it will not go as long as last week's sermon. I promise you. Got at least a minute and a half cut. So, uh, here we go. In light of that, if you have your place in God's word, let's go ahead and stand in honor of it. Our passage that we're going to be that I'm going to be preaching on goes from um, chapter one, verse six, to chapter two, verse nine. I'm only going to read uh, through the end of chapter one just to save us a little time. Okay. This is God's word. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then, if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how will we despise your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord Christ. And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord Christ. Oh, there were among, one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among 
And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the chief who is a male in his flock and vows it and sacrifices the Lord with his blast. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. This is God's working for our portion of prayer. Oh, Jesus, have mercy on us. Some of us this morning are coming in here. We're just going through emotions. And maybe we've been going through emotions our whole life. And we know what the emotions are supposed to look like. We know to look like we're really, really into what's being sung. Really fervently praying. We know how to nod. When we hear something in the sermon, but at the end of the day, it's just, my heart's not right. We're just playing on all so, Lord, we ask that you would move in our hearts and you would open them. That, every, that, that we might see you are a great king and give you the honor that you would give. this is Jesus' name. Oh, did you find your iPhone? I'm just wondering. Are we good? Okay, we're good. All right. As long as you found it, that's the important thing.
old favorite jazz in the future. Maybe you're the same. Probably not. But what happens when you're stuck there? What happens when that dis disappointment, that discouragement turns into disillusionment? What happens when that doubt of God's love for us expresses itself in our spiritual life? That's what this passage is about. And maybe it's where you find yourself this morning. What can happen in the midst of all of this, uh, in the midst of, in some ways, institutionalizing this, which is also what this passage is about, is that we tend to forget who God is and treat Him as we would one of our idols. We treat Him as we would pretend Him to be. And what ends up happening is what we're going to see this morning. And that's just namely this, that God's, by that, if we were able to, that would be a little key. Gods are happy with what we give them. But the true God is As always, you have not wanted anyone to take this. Not to worry about it. It's not going to happen. But let's, let me, let me, really quick, really quick, really quick, slight review, right? We did the whole Israelite history last week, but remember that, um, that after the, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, went into exile in 586. In 539 BC, King Cyrus of the Persians told the Israelites they could go back. And so they go back to Judah, they begin a new building. And this, the, God had promised this return from exile. So there was hopes and anticipations of what that would be like. And in their scriptures, what it said it would be like is they would return with joy and God's temple would be restored and the presence of God would be back among them. Sin would be forgiven. God's Messiah would rise up, and that the Gentile rulers would be cast off. Malachi is now in, in 430 BC, and guess what? The temple, not so much. It's there, but it doesn't look so nice. Sin, still wrestling. Gentiles, still under curse. Presence of God, haven't seen it. And people are disappointed. So let's look at where Malachi begins. Look at verse 6. The son honors his father and the servant his master. If I am my father, where is my honor? And if I am my master, where is my fear? So um, the jokes about Malachi being the Italian prophet, if you want to read that line in an Italian accent in your mind, it really does sound like, right? What is a mom, right? Uh, oh, that was terrible. Basically, like slapping. Uh, Sorry, Italian folks. I'm Irish. What do you want? Uh, so, uh, but here's the deal. Honor. When it says honor, that word in, in the original is the same word that we often, that gets translated, same word that gets translated for holy. And what it communicates is a weightiness. Uh, to, to honor someone is to acknowledge their weight. And obviously, I don't mean physically. I mean the weight of their personhood. That is a heavyish person. There, there's something... There's a gravitas right? And in an honor-shame culture, which is what that was, this would be a big deal. Now, traditionally, Western culture is not honor-shame. But we are beginning to move into honor-shame. And what I mean by that is the, um, the current practice amongst social media, mediaites, of canceling is a honor-shame thing. 
Just say something, imbues you, say something that's out of the court, imbues you with shame, and it's the worst possible thing ever. You've been shamed, you've been ostracized because you stepped out of line what you want, and it's the other reason why you virtue signal so that you achieve honor for yourself. You actually, you don't really care about the issue at hand, but you want everyone to think you do, so you put the little label on your social media account or whatever, and it's not like, hey, I'm going to go out and fight for something. It's, I want you to go out so it gives you honor. But if you don't, shame, right? So in an out-of-shame culture, what matters most is saving face. And if you are weighty, if you have gravitas, you are supposed to be treated a certain way. And so what God is saying is like, if I'm a father, because the father of the family is the one who is receiving honor, he's like, I don't get any honor. Your fathers do, I don't get it. Final master, slave-master relationship. Again, I know we don't like that, but I'm just going to move on. Okay, slave-master relationship. It says, I'm supposed to be feared. Does that mean terror? No. It's in, it's in um, parallel with honor. It means something similar. Respect. Again, gravitas. Where is it, God says? Now, interestingly, right here, you see that the, the audience, the immediate people that he is are priests, in other words, religious professionals. And we'll get more to that as we get into chapter 2. But this, this actually does apply to people as a whole, and, and we'll see why in a second. Okay? But, but keep, keep looking, because God says, says, I don't have honor, I don't have fear, says the Lord of hosts. Now when you see that, that, that name, Lord of hosts, you see that a lot in the Old Testament? That's a way of translating um, Matter of fact, uh, those of you who grew up in church sing, sing the old Lutheran hymn, Mighty Fortress is Our God, right? You ever wonder, Lord Sabaoth, his name? That's Lord of Hosts, okay? Sabaoth is the, is the Hebrew word, it's transliterated, but it's the Hebrew word, and it means Lord of Hosts. What it means is the Lord of the Heavenly Armies. It's talking about a king who's got a huge army behind him. You see why he uses that name in this, in this context? Because if you saw a king with a huge army, a huge army behind him, you dart straight, you're going to give him honor. Right? You, you dart straight, you're going to give him some respect. He's got a mighty army. This is the Lord of the heavenly armies. No honor. No respect. And in fact, what he says is, you are actually despising my name. Now, that seems really harsh, right? Like, despising? That's, I don't know, that seems a little strong. Right? Despising? I mean, maybe we get a little disrespectful. If you treat someone who deserves honor in a lax way, what does that mean you actually think of them? You're like, whatever. You disregard them. You're disregarding them. And it's indicative, if you treat someone who deserves honor without it, it's indicative of what you think about them. Right? And so then in verses 7 and 8, I'll just summarize it. Basically what he's saying is, you are offering junk to me. Okay? Now again, we have a hard time with that. Don't. Like, in, in Western culture, we have a hard time with that. It's basically like, but we're giving something. Shouldn't what we give be, that's, that's just, if you don't understand, right? In God's word, in the book of Leviticus, and, and I know everyone does their quiet times in the book of Leviticus, but in the book of Leviticus, what you would read over and over and over again, when it talks about every single sentence, 
sacrifice. There were a bunch. Is that the sacrifice is supposed to be the first, the best, and without blemish. Why? Because it's a sacrifice. If you give your leftovers, it's not a sacrifice. Right? You know what I mean by that? Like, to sacrifice something is literally like to give up something that matters to you. And, and to give your extras isn't a sacrifice. And so over and over again, God was very clear. It's to be the first and best. It's to be the first and best. Always the first and best. Always that without blemish. Specifically, not something blind. Not something wounded. Not something that can't do anything. It's, and, and that sacrifice... Off topic. But that sacrifice, the reason why it's the first and best is to make a statement and to form them as people that God provides for me not my ability to keep the best and most awesome of my things. You with me? And so as, as you give that, it's a way of, of worshiping God, not, not just not because like God is this awful deity who needs blood. It's, it's literally the, it's the same reason why um, Paul tells, like, we just got done in the, the Genesis series that Paul told the Corinthians to, at, on the first day of the week, set aside what you're going to give. It's your first, it's your best. It's just, I, I'm trusting that the Lord is going to provide for me. Not my ability to cheat the system. Right? And again, he calls this evil. Evil. Seems harsh, right? Like, I mean, isn't he kind of overblown this Evil. But here's why. Okay? Look down at the end of verse 2. He says, Why don't you present that to your governor? You think he's going to accept it? <coughs> so let me, let me paint a picture for you. When he says governor, he's talking about a Persian. Persia ruled its empire differently than the Babylonians and the Assyrians. The Babylonians and the Assyrians, what they would do is they would take a people, they would gather them up, and once they conquered them, they would take them, and they would move them out of their land, and they would move other people into the land. And the whole point of that was to take away any ancestral claim to the land, because the thought was, it'll keep rebellion. Right? The Persians were far better in administration. So what they would do is they would say, look, look, we're not going to remove you from your land. We're fine with you. In fact, you can worship your own gods if you want. Why would we care about that? What we're going to do is we're going to put these governors, what they call satraps, we're going to put these satraps over you in all of these regions. All we ask, all we ask, listen, we're not like those nasty Babylonians, okay? They were messing it all up. We're not like that other party. Here's our political party. Here's the way we do stuff. All we're going to ask for is just a little bit of this. Okay? And you can keep doing everything else. This governor, all he's going to do is just, just need some time. You know what taxes were back in the day? Your animals. That's your money. And so they come and he says, do you think your governor's going to take that from you? That's your taxes. Sorry. I think one of those things. That's your taxes. Right? That's, that's not worship. That's the tax. And he says, your governor wouldn't take that. You wouldn't think to offer that Gentile that is not even part of the family of Abraham. You wouldn't even think to offer it to him. Because you know it's not good enough. Did you give it to me? Give it to me. 
principle for that is harder, hard for us to grasp. And the principle is simply the more lofty the person, the more they are due. And I think of it like this, I guess. And I ask them really like this, and they're like, no, I totally get this. But like, if for some reason royals were coming over your house, you're probably not going to serve crap mac and cheese, right? Don't do it. No, not even know. Just don't. At least, at least don't make a mac and cheese. If you're going to do mac and cheese, get some olive oil. Weeks, right? But some of us, because we're married, we think, well, they're just people. You're right. They are just people. But there is something about their position. And that maybe, maybe we don't like the world. Okay? Let's look at their position. Let's think about something else. Maybe it's a governor. Maybe it's some, maybe it's a Hollywood star. That you live in. The point is, like, there's something about their position that even in a democratized culture, expects different treatment. Perhaps. So, that brings us down to verses 10 and 14. Look down at God's eyes. Now, look at this. Look at God's reaction to all this. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kill fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in this, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Do you realize what he says? What he's saying is stop your worship. Why don't you think about that for a second? Can you imagine God coming and saying, would you just stop? Would you just stop your singing? Stop your preaching? Maybe you can They're like, stop. Did you stop? I just wanted to stop. I would rather you just stop what you're doing than continue doing it the way you're doing. And the reason comes in verse 11 and later in verse 14. Look at verse 11. It says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Do you know what that means? What he means is, I don't need you. God is not Tinkerbell. If you don't believe in him, he doesn't cease to exist. Jesus put it this way when he was talking to, to uh, the Pharisees or it, John Paul, the Jews, but he's, he's talking to them and they, and they say, we're, we're children of Abraham. And he says, he says, do you do you think, basically he says, do you think God needs you? He can raise up children for Abraham from these rocks. Like that's the God that you worship. The rocks can come out and become children of Abraham. He doesn't need you. See, what, what this is giving the sense of is that our half-hearted worship is, in a sense, giving God a sloppy second to you. He's like, I don't need that. I don't need that from you. I don't need that from anyone. My name will be great all over the place. You think just because, you think I'm like lucky to have you coming and giving me whatever's left over? Christian-ish, right? 
Something that looks like it might honor God. Something that is biblical in the broad sense, right? It might even look a lot like what we're doing here and have some similar language, but there's a huge difference. And this is something that can come with disappointment. This is something that comes with disillusionment. Because when we talked about last week, when we doubt God's love for us, what, what brings it, though, or what it brings, is something that is not biblical, gospel, Christianity. It's too religious for that. Here's what I mean. Religion is based on certain assumptions. There is a God or some kind of deity, some kind of thing. He needs to be appeased, or at least believe him. He has standards, and when you keep those standards, he gives you stuff. Whatever stuff particularly stokes your fire. Maybe that stuff is approval from others. Maybe that stuff is a good life. Maybe that stuff is money. Maybe that stuff is just making it to the farm. You notice what's not present in that? Relationship. See, in religion, that God is not interested in you. He's just interested in your service. He's interested in your obedience. He's interested in you doing something. What he's not interested in is, is you. And so what inevitably happens in the midst of that, and some of you know this because you've been in these kind of settings, is that you begin thinking, what is the least that I have to do to get that which I want? Right? We see this everywhere. You see this? Listen. Drive through Bridgewater one night, especially at night in the summer, and what you'll see in fields is a tractor moving and this red glow coming from the cab. It's a cigarette. It's like, well, what's the big deal? Because that is being driven by someone who, in their religious system, Smoking is a sin. But they're doing it at night in the tractor because no one will see them. The point is, what is the minimum I have to do to get what I want? I am not us In its Christianish version, it can look one of two ways. The first is this. God is demanding and perfect. Okay? okay? So far, maybe so good. He's holy and just. Okay? We got that. And angry that we have turned away from Him. Jesus came to do some stuff, and that stuff kind of works to calm God down. But ultimately, what keeps us in God's good graces is our obedience to Him. So that you can't cuss or drink or anything like that. Lord knows I didn't sex outside of marriage. You're just lost forever. There's no coming back. And growth in that system looks like becoming more and more moral. Having your prayers sound really good. Being very articulate with your prayers, especially in public. That's probably the only place you do it. And giving glory to God, listen to me, about all the ways that you used to be a sinner. In Sounds familiar? Mercy on me, God. Or God, I thank you that you have not made me like other men. And if all of this is true of you, then God bless me. You 
feel loved. The second, the second way is that if we're being honest, God pretty much doesn't really care about what we do. But, but believing in Him is the right thing to do. So you show up, sing some hymns, get some stories in you, get a warm fuzzy to get you through the week. God is gentle, He's kindly, very nice. He asks nothing of you except that you believe and do your best. He affirms you in pretty much everything you already believe. Never challenges you. And strangely, his opinions seem to change at the same time as everyone in the culture. It's weird. We still didn't realize that's what God's thought all the time. We just If either of these two is what God, you, you would believe God is, I need to listen to you really close. Abandon him. So walk away from him. You would be right to do so. Some of us have, and you were right to do so. That God, though, is not what the God of the Bible is like. Because you see, in both of these, what is important is your participation in something. In the first, your problem is that you're not moral enough, and so you need to get more moral so God will like you and not squish you. In the second, the problem is you're not nice and affirming enough, but you can get there through enough heartwarming stories. Listen to me. These things may use Jesus in the name of Jesus to support their agendas, but neither is Christianity. Because God is way too holy to be appeased by your moral effort. Your problem is way worse than that. But he is also way too loving to leave you unchallenged and unchanged. Because you and I both know, listen, maybe you're a parent, maybe you're not, maybe you just Maybe you know little kids, you know how this works. It is not a loving thing to do to let a child run in every direction their heart embraces, right? Because you know where they will run? In the middle of traffic. That is not loving. And God is not loving for going, whatever you want, sweetie, I try, you're great. I just want you to feel good about yourself. While you run yourself off a cliff. Bye. He isn't interested in your performance because you and I have nothing to offer him. You can't make a deal with him because he doesn't need you. He doesn't need you. And so if you hear nothing else, I need you to hear, hear that. Because half-hearted worship, half-hearted Christianity, Christian-ish religion comes because of the false belief that somehow God needs us. And if that is your God, of course your worship is half-hearted. Why would you worship that? Why would you worship a God that needs you to exist? It's not much of a God. Why would you worship a God? Listen, listen. Why would you worship a God who lives and exists to make you happy? Is that honorable? Is that like something you're like, wow? Now, the person in this room, right? We didn't at some point grow out of the idea that we can let see. We can live to see. 
What is scary about the fact that he doesn't need us, frankly, is the reality that he doesn't need us that you and I cannot control. We can't work to find him to do something for us, which means we are at his mercy. Now, let's move into chapter 2. I didn't read that, so if it'll be up behind me, I'll read it as we go. Now, I said earlier that this is primarily a dispute with the priest, right? He hasn't said that. He can talk about priests the entire time, the religious professionals. But it extends beyond that because the priests are offering that which the people are giving them to offer, right? You would come to a priest, you would bring him in your hand. He doesn't have that. It's the other reason why you bring him right? Part of the reason for the time, he doesn't have any land. He can't, he can't grow livestock, he can't grow food. He needs, he, he's full-time, he's full-time doing this, like full-time, offering up so he can't, so that's why that happens. And so the people are bringing it, the priests are, not, are accepting it, and they're not challenging it, right? So God, in these verses, turns specifically to the priests, because they're following, the people are following the priests. So we get verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2. Oh, now the priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart and give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. Curse your blessings. Indeed, I already have cursed it. Because you don't take it to heart. Okay? Honor again. It starts here. It starts with what we would call clergy honoring God. And so here's what's important. These priests, they're just gods. They're just dudes. They're probably, of the people, probably the most di disappointed. You know who's the most disappointed in God? The folks who seem to have the most expectation of him because they've done reading, they've done studying, they, they think this is, I, I've read that this is how things are supposed to work, and they're not working that way. These guys are more familiar with God's word. They're familiar with his promises, familiar of the expectations of what would happen. Now look down verses 3 and 4. See God's view of what they're doing. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Here it comes. And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. Here's what I need you to understand. God is saying, your offerings are crap. That's the best. Okay, don't worry. My wife's so Is he going to say anything worse than that? <laughs> your offerings are crap. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wipe that crap all over your face. That's what I'm going to do. That's what I think of what you're doing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, what is God expecting? Like something perfect? No, he's not expecting perfection. He's expecting faithful. An offering that we offer to God is meant to be perfect. Obviously, a lamb without lunch is not the perfect lamb. It's not like, wow, this is, because then there will only be one, right? Like, here, this is the perfect lamb. Everyone else is not as good. Like, it's faithful. Faithful to what he has said. It's not hobbling on one leg. It's not hobbling it. It's, it's the best you could offer. It's faithful. There is a difference. But the reason why this has all happened, the reason even why God is saying, I'm not going to accept what you've given me, it's just awful, comes in verses 5 and 9, right? The, key, the force of verses 5 to 9 are basically... God getting an ideal, an ideal of this person of Levi. Now, if you're, if you're not familiar with biblical history again, uh, Levi was one of the 12 tribes. He was one of the sons of Jacob and the Levites. That's where the word Levites come from. 
were basically his family, his lineage, and they were given to be the priests. Okay? And so God, our Malachi is giving us an ideal in this person of Levi. And the key point in all of this about why it was, why he was so ideal has to do with teaching. This is true instruction was on his lips. I don't know if you knew this. The priests in the Old Testament were the ones who taught God's word. And it's almost like, well, what about the prophets? That's not what they did. They were, they were doing it in world. The priests were the ones who would open God's word and they would expose it. They would talk about it. They would teach it. So what is the true instruction that was on his lips? I know this is hard to believe for some of us who have grown up in traditions where this is true. The true instruction that was on his lips was the gospel. It was the gospel found in the Old Testament. It was the story of us breaking the relationship with God and God promising to make things right and that he would make things right and that he will come by grace and redeem his people. It's the story that's played out in the Exodus when, when God's people are, are in slavery not really following him. And they are all they are doing is crying out. They're not earning a thing. And God says, I'm going to rescue my people. And he pulls them out of slavery, out of the bonds of Pharaoh. And he delivers them. And then after he delivers them, he gives them his law. And the order is important. Because you and I come to that law and we think, well, here's, here's the rules that we have to keep to get God to do stuff for us. No, 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 that's not the way it works. God did stuff for them. The biggest thing, the act of redemption in the Old Testament, I redeem you. Now, now that you are a redeemed people, here's what it looks like to reflect my image in the world. Not, you better get your act together so that I don't redeem you. It's the gospel. And that continues to play out. God's grace in initiating, God's grace in redeeming, God's grace in showing his goodness. That is the true instruction that was to be on their lips. That was what was to protect against half-hearted worship. That was what was supposed to constantly come so that the people realized that the God that they worshipped was a God who was to honor and respect. So, that takes us to the gospel key. What is God? Honor? Sounds good. So how do we do that? More worship? Holy Cross Star Wednesday evening service. No. For multiple reasons. No. Honor is about is not about more religious work. The honor that God wants is depending on Him for what He has done. The problem in us is that everything that is in us pushes us away from this. And that is why true instruction is so essential. It's why the problem begins with the priests. Because here's the problem. So long as you believe you have a little problem, you will always need a little Savior to restore you to a very little God. But our God is not little. He is holy. Which means He's not like a bigger, better version of us. He is so utterly different. He is so holy that angels make perfect, can't even look at him. They have, they have wings that cover their faces because he's too glorious to even gaze upon. His holiness is beyond anything you can imagine. He's so holy that before him, you and I are utterly undone, that our 
so much so that our best efforts, and this is the Bible's words, not mine, that our best works are like used menstrual rags. Like, Rick, what the heck? It's the Bible's language, not mine. That's the best you can do. Kids, ask your parents, okay? That's the best you can do. Mom, ask mom, go ask dad. He holds the universe in his palms and nothing happens apart from his will. And if all of that were all that we knew about God, that would be enough for us all to go, I, he deserves all of the worship and honor I can possibly give. If that were it, that's not it. That is not all we know. We also know that we betray him and he loves us. He does not need us. He does not need our worship. Before creation, God was perfectly and fully satisfied in himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect loving relationship. He does not need a relationship with you. He does not need you to love him. He's not an insecure little deity. He wants to love you. He wants relationship with you. He doesn't need you. That would make this equal. He desires it. And so he works to reconcile us to himself. And the entire arc of the Bible is God working to answer his own promise to be with us, to be our God and restore us to him. That is why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to affirm you. And Jesus did not come to give you new rules to follow because the old ones weren't good enough. He came to live and die in a place, to deal with your sin by his death, to give you a perfect record by his life. And you cannot add to that, nor can you subtract from it. And that means that this God is holy, so holy that there is nothing to compare him to. And before him, all we have is our guilt. And yet this God rescues us out of his love. Do you now see why you worship? It's not because of circumstances. God has never promised to make your circumstances great. Show me that. Look at the scriptures and tell me that. I don't care if some preacher told me that. Like I told you in the beginning. If it didn't come from the Bible, don't listen to it. Where does it say, don't worry, I will make your life awesome. His promises go deeper than that. Because he has promised that through the work of Jesus, he will be with you in your circumstances, no matter what they are. And you will be with him, the one that you are made for. You see, you and I, we're big sick. With a big call. You have a big sick who restores you to a huge job. This God doesn't want your service, he doesn't want your obedience, he doesn't want your morality. He wants you. He wants your everything. He wants your trust and your hope. He wants your love, but not so that will, he will give something to you. Like, he doesn't want that so that here, you do this and I'm going to do this. No, no, no. He does that because he has already given everything for you. Because our little gods, they may be happy with whatever we give or left. The one true God wants to Did you pray for Lord, have mercy on us. Give us the